I don't want to sing about anger and hate. I don't want to sing about fear and defeat. I don't want to sing about the things I always sing about. I wish I could sing about love. I wish I could sing about love. I don't want to sing about war and greed. I don't want to sing about those we can't feed. I don't want to sing about the things I always sing about. I wish I could sing about love. I wish I could sing about love. I don't want to sing about suffering and pain. I don't want to sing for another campaign. I don't want to sing about the things I always sing about. I wish I could sing about love. I wish I could sing about love. I don't want to sing about rights and wrongs. I don't want to sing all the same old songs, but I'll sing them and sing them till there's no need to sing them, and then I can sing about love. Then I can sing about love. So I'll sing them and sing them till there's no need to sing them, and then I can sing about love. Then I can sing about love. And that was "Sing About Love" by Chumbawamba, which you can find on the album "The Boy Bands Have Won." Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy and our revolution, the movement he helped inspire. This podcast is completely independent from any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. 2016. You can find out more about Bernie 2016 at Bernie-2016.com. On that site, you'll find back episodes and you can view my Flipboard magazine called Bernie for President, where I am collecting articles, stories, and comments on Bernie and our revolution. You can also support this podcast directly by going to patreon.com slash unrelated things and making a donation. So the election is over. And we all know what the results are. And before I talk much about them, I'm going to read this piece, this piece I found on static.currentaffairs.org. And it was written a while ago, as you'll know from the tone of the comments in this piece. But I'm not going to tell you when it was written until the end. This was written by Nathan J. Robinson. With Donald Trump looking increasingly likely to actually be the Republican nominee for president, it's long past time for the Democrats to start working on a pragmatic strategy to defeat him. 
months of complacent wishful insistencies that trouble disappear have proven false. And with a firm commanding lead in polls and several major primary victories, predictions are increasingly favoring Trump to win the nomination. If Democrats honestly believe, as they say they do, that Trump poses a serious threat to the well-being of the country and the lives of minority citizens, that means doing everything possible to keep him out of office. To do that will require them to very quickly unite around a single goal, albeit a counterintuitive one. They must absolutely They must make absolutely sure that Bernie Sanders is a Democratic nominee for president. The electability question should be at the center of the Democratic primary. After all, elections are about winning, and high-minded liberal principles mean nothing if one has no chance of actually triumphing in a general election. Hillary Clinton has been right to emphasize that the pragmatic achievement of goals should be the central concern of a presidential candidate, and that Bernie Sanders supporters often behave as if this is immaterial. Instinctively, Hillary Clinton has long seemed by far the more electable of the two Democratic candidates. She is, after all, an experienced, pragmatic moderate, whereas Sanders is a raving, arm-flacking elder arm-flapping, elderly Jewish socialist from Vermont. Clinton is simply closer to the American mainstream. Thus, she is more attractive to a broader swath of voters. Sanders' campaigners have grown used to hearing the heavy-hearted lament, quote, I like Bernie. I just don't think he can win. And in typical previous American elections, this would be perfectly accurate. But this is far from a typical previous American election, and recently everything about the electability calculus has changed due to one simple fact. Donald Trump is likely to be the Republican nominee for president. Given this reality, every Democratic strategic question must operate not on the basis of abstract electability against a hypothetical candidate, but specific electability against the actual Republican nominee, Donald Trump. Here, a Clinton matchup is highly likely to be an unmitigated electoral disaster, whereas the Sanders candidacy stands a far better chance. Every one of Clinton's considerable weaknesses plays to every one of Trump's strengths, whereas every one of Trump's few weaknesses plays to every one of Sanders' strengths. From a purely pragmatic standpoint, running Clinton against Trump is is a disastrous, suicidal proposition. Sanders supporters have lately been arguing that their candidate is more electable than people think, and they have some support from the available polling. In a number of hypotheticals, Sanders does better than Clinton at beating Trump, and his unfavorable ratings among voters are a good deal lower than Clinton's. In response to this, however, Clinton supporters insist that polling at this stage means very little, and since Bernie is not well known and there has not been a national attack campaign directed at him from the right yet, his supporters do not account for the drop in support that will occur when voters realize he is on the fringes. Imagine, they say, how viciously the right will attack Sanders' liberal record. Clinton's people are right to point out that these polls mean very little. 
After all, Sanders' entire campaign success is a caution against placing too much weight on early polling. And they are especially right to emphasize that we should visualize how the campaign by conservatives will realistically play out, rather than attempting to divine the future from highly fallible polling numbers. But it's precisely when we try to envision how the real dynamics of the campaign will transpire that we see just how disastrous a Clinton-Trump fight will be for Clinton. Her supporters insist that she has already been, quote, tried and tested against all the attacks that can be thrown at her. But this is not the case. She has never been subjected to the full brunt of attacks that come in a general presidential election. Bernie Sanders has ignored most tabloid dirt, treating it as a sensationalist distraction from real issues. But for Donald Trump, sensationalist distractions are the whole game. He will attempt to crucify her, and it is very, very likely that he will succeed. Trump's political dominance is highly dependent on his idiosyncratic, audacious method of campaigning. He deals almost entirely in amusing, outrageous, below-the-belt personal attacks and is skilled at turning public discussions away from the issues and towards personalities. If Trump does have to speak about the issues, he makes himself sound foolish because he doesn't know very much. Thus, he requires the media not to ask him difficult questions and depends on his opponents having personal weaknesses and scandals that he can merrily, mercilessly exploit. This campaigning style makes Hillary Clinton Donald Trump's dream opponent. She gives him an endless amount to work with. The emails, Benghazi, Whitewater, Iraq, the Lewinsky scandal, Chinagate, Travelgate, the missing law firm records, Jeffrey Epstein, Kissinger, Mark Rich, Haiti, Clinton Foundation tax errors, Clinton Foundation conflicts of interest. Quote, we were broke when we left the White House, unquote. Goldman Sachs, there's enough material in Hillary Clinton's background for Donald Trump to run with six times over. The defense offered by Clinton supporters is that none of these issues actually amount to anything once you look at them carefully. But this is completely irrelevant. All that matters is the fodder they would provide for the Trump machine. Who is going to be looking carefully? In the time you spend trying to clear up the basic facts of whitewater, Trump will have made five more allegations. Even a skilled campaigner would have a very difficult time parrying such endless attacks by Trump. Even the best campaigner would find it impossible to draw attention back to actual substantive policy issues and would spend their every moment on the defensive. But Hillary Clinton is neither the best campaigner nor even a skilled one. In fact, she is a dreadful campaigner. She may be a skilled policymaker, but on the campaign trail, she makes constant missteps and never realizes things have gone wrong until it's too late. Everyone knows this. Even among Democratic Party operatives, she is acknowledged as, quote, awkward and uninspiring on the stump, carrying, quote, Bill's baggage with none of Bill's warmth. New York Magazine described her, quote, failing to demonstrate the most elementary political skills, much less those learned at Toastmasters or Dale Carnegie. Last year, the White House was panicking at her levels of electoral incompetence, her questionable decision-making, and her inclination for taking sleazy shortcuts. 
More recently, noting Sanders' catch-up in the polls, the Washington Post's Jennifer Rubin said that she was a, quote, rotten candidate, whose attacks on Sanders made no sense, and that, quote, at some point, you cannot blame the national mood or a poor staff or a brilliant opponent for Hillary Clinton's campaign woes. Yet, in a race against Trump, Hillary will be handicapped not only by her feeble campaigning skills, but by the fact that she will have a sour national mood, a poor staff, and a brilliant opponent. Every Democrat should take some time to fairly dispassionately examine Clinton's track record as a campaigner. Study how the 08 campaign was handled and how this one has gone. Assess her strengths and weaknesses with as little bias or prejudice as possible. Then picture the race against Trump and think about how it would unfold. It's easy to see that Trump has every single advantage because the Republican primary will be over. He can come at her from both right and left as he pleases. As a candidate who thundered against the Iraq war at the Republican debate, he can taunt Clinton over her support for it. He will paint her as a member of the corrupt political establishment and will even offer proof. Quote, well, I know you can buy politicians because I bought Senator Clinton. I gave her money. She came to my wedding. He can make it appear that Hillary Clinton can be bought, that he can't, and that he is in charge. It's also hard to defend against because it appears to be partly true. Any denial looks like a lie, thus making Hillary's situation look even worse. And then when she stumbles, he will mock her as incompetent. Charges of misogyny against Trump won't work. He is going to fill the press with the rape and harassment allegations against Bill Clinton and Hillary's role in discrediting the victims. He can always remind people that Hillary Clinton referred to Monica Lewinsky as, quote, narcissistic looney tune. Furthermore, since Trump is not, not an anti-planned parenthood zealot, it will be hard for Clinton to paint him as the usual anti-feminist right-winger. Trump will capitalize on his reputation as a truth-teller and be vicious about both Clinton's sudden changes of position and her perceived dishonesty. One can already imagine the monologue. Quote, she lies so much. Everything she says is a lie. I've never seen someone who lies so much in my life. Let me tell you three lies she's told. She made up a story about how she was ducking sniper fire. There was no sniper fire. She made it up. How do you forget a thing like that? She said she was named after Sir Edmund Hillary, the guy who climbed Mount Everest. He hadn't even climbed it when she was born. Total lie. She lied about emails, of course, as we all know, and is probably going to be indicted. You know, she said there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. It was a lie. Thousands of American soldiers are dead because of her. Not only does she lie, her lies kill people. That's four lies. I said I'd give you three. You can't even count them. You want to go on PolitiFact and see how many lies she has? It takes you an hour to read them all. In fact, they ask her, she doesn't even say she has lied. They asked her straight up. She says she usually tries to tell the truth. Ooh, she tries. Come on. This is a person. Every single word out of her mouth is a lie. Nobody trusts her. Check the polls. Nobody trusts her. Huge liar. Where does she even begin to respond to this? Some of it is true. Some of it isn't. But the more she tries to defensively parse it, the deeper she sinks into the hole. 
Trumple bob, trumple weave, jab, and hook. He won't let up. And because Clinton actually has lied and actually did vote for the Iraq war and actually is hyper cozy with Wall Street and actually does change her positions based on expediency, all she can do is issue further implausible denials, which will further embolden Trump. Nor does she have a single offensive weapon at her disposal, since every legitimate criticism of Trump's background is equally applicable to Clinton, and he knows how to make such things slide off him, whereas she doesn't. The whole Clinton campaign has been unraveling from its inception. It fell apart completely in 2008 and has barely held together against the longest of long-shot candidates. No matter how likely she may be to win the primary, things do not bode well for her in a general election. As H.A. Goodman put it in Salon, Please name the last person to win the presidency alongside an ongoing FBI investigation, negative favorability ratings, questions about character linked to continual flip-flops, a dubious money trail of donors, and a genuine contempt of the rival political party. The contempt bit of this is obviously silly. We all know levels of contempt have reached their world historic high point in the Republican attitude towards Obama. But the rest is true. It's incredibly hard to run somebody very few people like and expect to win. With the jocular shrewd Donald Trump as an opponent, that holds true a million times over. Nor are the demographics going to be as favorable to Clinton as she thinks. Trump's populism will have huge resonance among the white working class in both red and blue states. He might even peel away her black support. And Trump has already proven false the prediction that he would alienate evangelicals through his vulgarity and his self-deification. Democrats are insistently repeating their belief that a Trump nomination will mobilize liberals to head to the polls like never before. But with nobody particularly enthusiastic for Clinton's candidacy, it's not implausible that a large number of people will find both options so unappealing that they stay home. A Clinton-Trump match should therefore not just worry Democrats, it should terrify them. They should be doing everything possible to avoid it. A Trump-Sanders contest, however, looks very different indeed. Trump's various unique methods of attack would instantly be made far less useful in a run against Sanders. All of the most personal charges, untrustworthiness, corruption, rank hypocrisy, are much more difficult to make stick. The rich history of dubious business dealings is non-existent. None of the sleaze in which Trump traffics can be found clinging to Bernie. Trump's stand-up routine just has much less obvious personal material to work with. Sanders is a fairly transparent guy. He likes the social safety net. He doesn't like oligarchy. He's a workaholic who sometimes takes a break to play basketball. And that's pretty much all there is to it. Contrast that with the above-noted list of juicy Clinton tidbits. Trump can't clown around nearly as much at a debate with Sanders for the simple reason that Sanders is dead set on keeping every conversation about the plight of America's poor under the present economic system. If Trump tells jokes and goofs off here, he looks as if he's belittling poor people. Not a magnificent idea for an Ivy League trust fund billionaire running against a working class public servant and veteran of the civil rights movement. 
Instead, Trump will be forced to do what Hillary Clinton has been forced to do during the primary, namely to make himself sound as much like Bernie Sanders as possible. For Trump, having to get serious and take the Trump show off the air will be devastating to his unique, charismatic appeal. Against Trump, Bernie can play the same experience card that Hillary plays. After all, while Sanders may look like a policy amateur next to Clinton, next to Trump, he looks positively statesmanlike. Sanders can point to his successful mayorality and long history as Congress's amendment king as evidence of his administrative bona fides. And Sanders' lack of foreign policy knowledge won't hurt him when facing someone with even less. Sanders will be enough of an outsider for Trump's populist anti-Washington appeal to be powerless, but enough of an insider to appear an experienced hand at governance. Trump is an attention-craving parasite, and such creatures are powerful only when indulged and paid attention to. Clinton will be forced to pay attention to Trump because of his constant evocation of her scandals. She will attempt to go after him. She will, in other words, feed the troll. Sanders, by contrast, will almost certainly behave as if Trump isn't even there. He is unlikely to rise to Trump's bait because Sanders doesn't even care to listen to anything that's not about saving Social Security or the disappearing middle class. He will almost certainly seem as if he barely knows who Trump is. Sanders' commercials will be similar to those he has run in the primary, featuring uplifting images of America, aspirational sentiments about what we can be together, and moving testimonies from ordinary Americans. Putting such genuine dignity and good feeling against Trump's race-baiting clownishness will be like finally pouring water on the wicked witch. Hillary Clinton cannot do this. With her, the campaign will inevitably descend into the gutter, and the unstoppable bloated Trump menace will continue to grow ever larger. Sanders is thus an almost perfect secret weapon against Trump. He can pull off the only maneuver that is capable of neutralizing Trump, ignoring him and actually keeping the focus on the issues. Further, Sanders will have the advantage of an enthusiastic army of young volunteers who will be strongly dedicated to the mission of stalling Trump's quest for the presidency. The Sanders team is extremely technically skilled. Everything from their television commercials to their rally organizing to their inspired teasing is pulled off well. The Sanders team is slick and adaptable. The Clinton team is ropey and fumbling. There is only one real way to attack Bernie Sanders, and we all know it. He is a socialist fantasist out of touch with the realities of economics. But Trump is a worse, in the worst possible position to make this criticism. Economists have savaged Trump's own proposals as sheer lunacy, using every word deployed against Bernie and then some. And while from a D.C. policy veteran like Clinton, charges of a failure to understand how political decision-making works may sound reasonable, Sanders is a successful legislator who has run a city. The host of The Apprentice Apprentice may have a more difficult time portraying a long-serving congressman as being unfamiliar with how Washington works. Of course, the American people are still jittery about socialism, but they're less jittery than they used to be. And Bernie does a good job portraying socialism as being about little more than paid family leave and sick days, a debatable proposition, but one beside the point. His policies are popular and appeal to the prevailing nationalist national sentiment. 
It's a risk, certainly, but the Soviet Union boogeyman is long gone, and everyone gets called a socialist these days, no matter what their politics. It's possible that swing voters dislike socialism more than they dislike Hillary Clinton, but in a time of economic discontent, one probably shouldn't bet on it. One thing that should be noted is that all of this analysis applies solely to a race against Trump. The situation changes drastically and unpredictably if Marco Rubio is a nominee or Michael Bloomberg enters the race. Yet, at the moment, it doesn't look like Marco Rubio will be nominated, but that Donald Trump will be. And in that case, Clinton is toast. Some in the media have rushed to declare Sanders' campaign moribund in the wake of his recent loss in Nevada. This is absurd. After all, out of 50 states, only three have voted, one being a tie, one being a major Sanders win, and one being a small Clinton win. The media has dishonestly pointed to Hillary Clinton's higher superdelegate count as evidence of her strong lead, despite knowing full well that superdelegates are highly unlikely to risk tearing the party apart by taking the nomination out of voters' hands, and are thus mostly a formality. The press has also crafted a narrative about Sanders, quote, slipping behind, ignoring the fact that Sanders has been behind from the very start. Not for a moment has he been in the front. But even if it was correct to say Sanders was starting to lose instead of progressively losing less and less, this should only motivate all Democrats to work harder to make sure he is nominated. One's support for Sanders should increase in direct proportion to one's fear of Trump. And if Trump is the nominee, Hillary Clinton should drop out of the race and throw her every ounce of energy into supporting Sanders. If this does not occur, the resulting consequences for Muslims and Mexican immigrants of a Trump presidency will be fully the responsibility of Clinton and the Democratic Party. To run a candidate who can't win or who is a very high-risk proposition is to recklessly play with the lives of millions of people. So much depends on stopping Trump. A principled defeat will mean nothing to the deported or to those being roughed up by Trump's goon squads. Donald Trump is one of the most formidable opponents in the history of American politics. He is sharp, shameless, and likable. If he is going to be the nominee, Democrats need to think very seriously about how to defeat him. If they don't, he will be the President of the United States, which will have disastrous repercussions for religious and racial minorities, and likely for everyone else, too. Democrats should consider carefully how a Trump-Clinton matchup would develop and how a Trump-Sanders matchup would. For their sake, hopefully they will realize that the only way to prevent a Trump presidency is the nomination of Bernie Sanders. And that piece was by Nathan J. Robinson, who is a social policy PhD student at Harvard University, as well as an attorney and a children's book author and the editor of Current Affairs. And that piece was in Current Affairs. And that was printed in February, on February 23, 2016. So when I read that recently, it was pretty stunning outside of the fact that it paints Trump as a strong campaigner 
and Trump's campaign was far from strong. Uh, Trump, Trump certainly had the ability, maybe he didn't have the ability, there was the potential that Trump could have run a very strong campaign against Clinton, which he did not. He ran kind of a, a very weak campaign against Clinton, and he still beat Clinton. That shows the weakness in Clinton and her campaign. She was a, a very weak candidate for all the reasons stated. That doesn't mean she was a weak policymaker or a poor policymaker. But as a candidate with the baggage that she had, with the hatred that she faced from the right and the right-wing media, and with her poor campaign, it was a very, very tough road for Clinton and one that she did not uh, rise to meet, leaving us with President Trump. So the election's over. There's certainly more commentary to come. But here's a small bit of reflection from my perspective on the election. I have regrets about this election. I regret some of my actions during this election. And as as all of you who've listened before know, I voted for Jill Stein. And I have absolutely no regrets whatsoever about that. But I do regret a couple things. I regret not fighting harder, not being more vociferous, not joining more people and fighting harder for Bernie Sanders to be the Democratic nominee. So I do have regrets that I did not take part more strongly in trying to get Bernie Sanders elected. And I have similar regrets about Jill Stein. I I wish I had pivoted earlier and joined in with other people fighting for Jill Stein and took part in working to get Jill Stein elected. Not that I would think that that would make any difference whatsoever in the final outcome, but building a valid third party when the two major parties don't give a shit about the middle class in this country and the poor in this country is something that is necessary and has been necessary for a long time. So those are my regrets. Otherwise, I don't know that I have any others. I don't regret not supporting Hillary Clinton. She did not stand for the policies and positions that I believe in. Uh, she stood against some of the key key items that I strongly support, including Medicare for All and a $15 minimum wage and stopping the Dakota Access Pipeline 
from the progressive perspective, in my opinion, she was a very weak candidate. So now we have President Trump. We've been here before. We had Bush. We had the other Bush. We had that Reagan fella. So we will get through something that's extremely encouraging are the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people nationally that are out there protesting against Trump and what Trump stands for. And rightly so. Trump's statements during his run and his claimed actions have been racist, sexist, etc. And those deserve to be unequivocally up and down repudiated. We don't believe in that. We won't stand for that. If that is what you represent, you do not represent us. So I'm highly encouraged by those protests. I hope that those protests get some additional or other focus besides let's send a message to Trump. Let's have five times as many people, 10 times as many people get out there and say, do something about climate change and not just to Trump. Trump, I don't think really gives a shit. I think he's made that abundantly clear on that issue in particular. There might be a couple issues that we could move him a little bit on, but I think for the most part, he's he's not really the the target of what should be a groundswell in this country. But our local elected officials and our state elected officials and our national elected officials outside of, of Trump, we need to put tremendous pressure on them to move our agenda forward, to move the agenda that Bernie Sanders stood for forward. And I think Bernie will continue to fight for that. Um, And we all should join him and all the others that fight for the same things. So moving on this is a statement on from Wednesday, November 9th from Bernie Sanders. Donald Trump tapped into the anger of a declining middle class, and that is sick that is sick and tired of establishment economics, establishment politics, and the establishment media. People are tired of working longer hours for lower wages, seeing decent paying jobs go to China and other low wage countries or billionaires not paying any federal income taxes, and of not being able to afford a college education for their kids, all while the very rich become much richer. To the degree that Mr. Trump is serious about pursuing policies that improve the lives of working families in this country, I and other progressives are prepared to work with him. To the degree that he pursues racist, sexist, xenophobic, and anti-environmental policies, we will vigorously oppose him. 
And this piece as well is from Bernie Sanders. This was published in the New York Times. Millions of Americans registered a protest vote on Tuesday, expressing their fierce opposition to an economic and political system that puts wealthy and corporate interests over their own. I strongly supported Hillary Clinton, campaigned hard on her behalf, and believed she was the right choice on Election Day. But Donald J. Trump won the House, won the White House, because his campaign rhetoric successfully tapped into a very real and justified anger, an anger that many traditional Democrats feel. I am saddened, but not surprised, by the outcome. It is no shock to me that millions of people who voted for Mr. Trump did so because they are sick and tired of the economic, political, and media status quo. Working families watch as politicians get campaign financial support from billionaires and corporate interests and then ignore the needs of ordinary Americans. Over the last 30 years, too many Americans were sold out by their corporate bosses. They work longer hours for lower wages as they see decent-paying jobs go to China, Mexico, or some other low-wage country. They're tired of having chief executives make 300 times what they do, while 52% of all new income goes to the top 1%. Many of their once beautiful rural towns have depopulated. Their downtown stores are shuttered and their kids are leaving home because there are no jobs. All while corporations suck the wealth out of their communities and stuff them into offshore accounts. Working Americans can't afford decent quality child care for their children. They can't send their kids to college, and they have nothing in the bank as they head into retirement. In many parts of the country, they can't find affordable housing, and they find the cost of health insurance much too high. Too many families exist in despair as drugs, alcohol, and suicide cut life short for a growing number of people. President-elect Trump is right. The American people want change. But what kind of change will he be offering them? Will he have the courage to stand up to the most powerful people in this country who are responsible for the economic pain that so many working families feel? Or will he turn the anger of the majority against minorities, immigrants, the poor, and the helpless? Will he have the courage to stand up to Wall Street, work to break up the too-big-to-fail financial institutions, and demand that big banks invest in small businesses and create jobs in rural America and inner cities? Or will he appoint another Wall Street banker to run the Treasury Department and continue business as usual? Will he, as he promised during the campaign, really take on the pharmaceutical industry and lower the price of prescription drugs? I am deeply distressed to hear stories of Americans being intimidated and harassed in the wake of Mr. Trump's victory, and I hear the cries of families who are living in fear of being torn apart. We have come too far as a country in combating discrimination. We are not going back. 
Rest assured, there is no compromise on racism, bigotry, xenophobia, and sexism. We will fight it in all its forms, whenever and wherever it reemerges. I will keep an open mind to see what ideas Mr. Trump offers and when and how we can work together. Having lost the nationwide popular vote, however, he would do well to heed the views of progressives. If the president-elect is serious about pursuing policies that improve the lives of working families, I'm going to present some very real opportunities for him to earn my support. Let's rebuild our crumbling infrastructure and create millions of well-paying jobs. Let's raise the minimum wage to a living wage, help students afford to go to college, provide paid family and medical leave, and expand Social Security. Let's reform an economic system that enables billionaires like Mr. Trump not to pay a nickel in federal income taxes. And most important, let's end the ability of wealthy campaign contributors to buy elections. In the coming days, I will also provide a series of reforms to reinvigorate the Democratic Party. I believe strongly that the party must break loose from its corporate establishment ties and, once again, become a grassroots party of working people, the elderly, and the poor. We must open the doors of the party to welcome in the idealism and energy of young people and all Americans who are fighting for economic, social, racial, and environmental justice. We must have the courage to take on the greed and power of Wall Street, the drug companies, the insurance companies, and the fossil fuel industry. When my presidential campaign came to an end, I pledged to my supporters that the political revolution would continue. And now, more than ever, that must happen. We are the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. When we stand together, And don't let demagogues divide us up by race, gender, or national origin. There is nothing we cannot accomplish. We must go forward, not backward. So that was Bernie Sanders' commentary on the presidential election. But the presidential election was not the only election that happened on November the 8th. There were many, many other candidates on the ballot. There were many issues on the ballot. There were many other things and many other reasons for us to go and to vote. And while Clinton had no coattails and apparently didn't even have a coat and the Democrats did not take control of the Senate or the House, and the House was always uh, extraordinarily difficult to attempt to take control of with the deficit that the Democrats had at the time. In my state of New Jersey, um, in all of the precincts or all of the... uh, segments of the state, and I can't think of the right word at the moment, um, for which candidates run, incumbents were re-elected in every one except one, 
in one area, the Republican incumbent was defeated by the Democratic challenger. And that is actually the area that I live in, in New Jersey. Uh, Josh Gothheimer defeated Scott Garrett. But this wasn't a grassroots campaign, and Josh wasn't a grassroots candidate. And that doesn't mean he didn't work hard and knock on doors and have, have a lot of supporters who helped him do that. And I, I don't say that to, to denigrate the work that he and his supporters did to get him elected. I think that our area is better off with him than Scott Garrett. But this was an election that, on top of the work that the candidates did to try to win, tons of outside money came pouring in to either hold or overturn this district. And the tone of the campaign was extremely negative. All the mailers I got told me how bad the opponent was. And only one of, I probably got at least 10 different mailers over the course of the election. One of those mailers said something to the effect of, this is Josh Gothheimer, and we think he's a good candidate for this reason and this reason and this reason. And it was about one sentence. Every other bit of campaign literature that I saw regarding the race between Scott Garrett and Josh, Go- Josh Gothheimer was a negative attack on the opponent. And those didn't necessarily come from the campaigns. These came from the the PACs and the super PACs and the other outside interests pouring money in to the campaign. But between Josh's political stance, he was a, he is a corporate Democrat. And the negative tone of the campaign, I couldn't stand to vote for either candidate in it. So while I'm glad that Scott Garrett is out and someone better is in, uh, I, I think we have a ways to go to get a candidate representing me in the Congress that stands for what I believe in. So where did I start? Uh, oh yeah, Hillary didn't have her coat on. So she had no coattails. She did not help very many people. And that doesn't mean she didn't help anyone anywhere. But uh, she certainly, with her weak campaign, didn't help bring voters out to get more Democrats in to office. But despite that, there are a number of places where we won. And I say we in the broader sense, we as progressives, um, Bernie's, Bernie's the, the group that Bernie inspired our revolution uh, was supportive of a significant number of candidates at all levels, state houses, local races, national races. And a good number of those candidates won. And 
another significant number lost. One of the notable losses was Zephyr Teach out in New York. Another notable loss was Tim Canova in the in the primary in Florida. So there were some strong progressive candidates out there. And of course, with any race, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But I'm going to talk about some of the wins. In addition to specific candidates, our revolution also endorsed some ballot initiatives in various places. And uh, some of those won as well. And they have a list on their website at ourrevolution.com. So in Virginia, there was a right to work amendment to add an anti-union statute to the Constitution. And that was defeated. There were a number of states that had medical and sometimes recreational marijuana uh, um, ballot initiatives on the ballot. And a number of those passed. In Arkansas, medical cannabis statute passed. In Maine, marijuana legalization measure passed. Barely in Maine, 50% to 50% with a slight edge to the yeses there. Uh, in Montana, a medical marijuana initiative. In Florida. So there were a number of those. And there were some other things that our revolution was supporting that passed. In Alaska, there was a voter registration amendment. In California, Proposition 59 was to overturn Citizens United. In California, there was a non-English languages allowed in public education act that was supported by 72%. A minimum wage increase in Washington, an anti-corruption act in South Dakota, charter school expansion in Massachusetts was defeated. Solar energy choice in Florida. Uh, which was approved plastic bag ban veto referendum in California, adult use of marijuana in California, something in Washington called restoring the voice of we, the people. I think that was also about citizens United passed a law in South Dakota Referred law number 20 to create a sub-minimum wage was defeated, 71% to 29%. A minimum wage increase in Maine. Another item in Maine called Stand Up for Students. And another item in Maine that was watched pretty closely by many who support third parties And that was question number five in Maine on ranked choice voting. That passed 52% to 48%. And I'll have another story about that a little later. So in addition to some of those ballot initiatives that passed across the country, there were a number of progressives that were running 
and that one. One of those was uh, Pramila Jayapal, who ran in Washington. And she sent out this letter after the election. Our victory tonight is not about me. It is about we. While it was my name on the ballot, what I believe through my life is that change happens when everyone engages in the process. I cannot wait to take our mighty movement to the halls of Congress, and I am so honored that you helped me make history as the first woman to represent our district, the first person of color in the Washington State Democratic Delegation, and the first Indian American woman ever elected to the United States Congress. Our incredible intersectional coalition will be at my side and out in front as we work to pass policies that advance justice for all of us. What we built over the past 11 months has been nothing short of miraculous. The kind of change we seek won't come quickly or easily because it's not just about changing policies. It's about changing our politics from a system that is transactional to one that is transformational. A transformational politics that allows all of us to be lifted up together and that proudly takes care of those amongst us who need it the most. A transformational politics that sees the world through a lens of generosity and abundance and not scarcity and fear. A transformational politics that believes that we all have the talents and gifts to offer And the task at hand is to pass policies that leverage what we all have to offer so we all live our lives to our fullest potential. So that was part of a letter that Pramia or Pramila Jayapal wrote uh, winning her election to Congress in Seattle. In addition, in Virginia... Unions Defeated a Right to Work Amendment. And this piece is by Dave Jameson. And this is from HuffingtonPost.com. And a bit of good news for labor unions. Virginians voted down a ballot initiative Tuesday that would have enshrined the state's right to work status in the state constitution. Unions in Virginia campaigned hard against the proposal, which was supported by business groups and Republican lawmakers. Virginia has had a right-to-work law on the books for decades, but the ballot measure would have effectively made it permanent. Right-to-work laws forbid contracts between unions and employers that require all employees in a workplace to pay the union for bargaining on their behalf. Under U.S. labor law, unions have to represent all employees in a particular bargaining unit, even those who want nothing to do with the union. Unions say it's only fair that everyone chip in to cover the costs of representation. In states with right-to-work laws, employees in unionized workplaces aren't obligated to pay any fees to the union, allowing them to opt out completely. Conservatives refer to this as workplace freedom, but unions call it free riding. Whatever you want to call it, it's been the reality in Virginia since 1947, when changes in federal law first allowed states to pursue right-to-work laws. It's one reason union membership is so low in Virginia when compared with other states. But the prevailing state of affairs in Virginia wasn't sufficient for backers of what was called Constitutional Amendment Question 1 on the ballot. 
If approved, the measure would have amended the state constitution so that Virginia could never not be a right-to-work state, save for another change to the constitution. Terry McAuliffe, the state's Democratic governor, would not be able to veto it. Those who pushed the amendment claimed it would make Virginia more attractive to employers who wouldn't have to worry about the state repealing its right-to-work law. Typifying this argument, the head of the Loudoun County Chamber of Commerce claimed that cementing right-to-work in the Constitution would make Virginia a more, quote, competitive and attractive place for business and job creation. Backers of the amendment may have feared that as Virginia creeps bluer and bluer, a Democratic-controlled statehouse could one day repeal its right-to-work status. But that seems unlikely. When he was Virginia's Democratic governor, even Tim Kaine, Hillary Clinton's running mate, said the state's right-to-work law was something he, quote, strongly supports. And once a state goes right-to-work, it tends to stay that way, especially when it's the long-standing tradition in a place like Virginia. Besides, right-to-work laws are now more popular than ever, to the great, great detriment of unions. It used to be that right-to-work laws were confined to the South and parts of the West, but in the past four and a half years, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, and West Virginia have all gone right-to-work. After West Virginia passed its law in February, a majority of states, 26, were right-to-work for the first time ever. In the case of Virginia, unions there were able to mobilize and defeat a constitutional amendment that posed a threat to them. But all their victory accomplished was preserving the status quo. And this piece is from Jill Stein. This is a press release, and this was on Jill2016.com. I'm writing to share my thoughts with you as we grieve together this morning after Donald Trump's election. I want to acknowledge the very real pain that so many Americans are feeling. We cannot and will not concede to what a Trump presidency represents for people of color, women, immigrants, Muslims, LGBT folks, the poor, and working people. We call on all Americans to stand together with oppressed communities and demand that Trump respect the human rights and dignity of all people in our society and our world. We must stand with people of color, with immigrants and indigenous people, with Muslims, Jews, LGBTQ people, women, and all whose rights are threatened. Solidarity must be our guiding principle. This bitter election has left the overwhelming majority of Americans feeling disgusted. Polls show a large majority of voters were motivated by fear of the other candidate, not support for their candidate. This is another symptom of a democracy on life support. Many are rightly outraged about the DNC's sabotage of Bernie Sanders, who by all indications would have trounced Donald Trump. We must also recognize the leading role played by corporate media in turning this election into a toxic reality show. The media elevated Trump at the bidding of Democratic National Committee and to boost their own advertising profits. 
They also marginalized Bernie Sanders and massively silenced our campaign and Gary Johnson's in a year when Americans were screaming for more choices. And they legitimized corporate-controlled debates that locked out political competition. One study found that our campaign received three seconds of coverage on corporate media for every 1,700 minutes for Trump and every 1,000 minutes for Clinton. We urgently need to support independent media whose only agenda is informing the public of the truth. In spite of all the barriers to our participation, we earned over 1 million votes for peaceful revolution, more than doubling our vote count in 2012. The anti-establishment revolt we're witnessing is driven by very real suffering in our country. High real unemployment, falling real wages, lack of affordable health care, and education have devastated our communities, while both establishment parties have pushed corporate trade deals, wars for oil, and Wall Street bailouts to enrich the elite. The anger at economic inequality is easily manipulated to divide the people against each other. We must revive American democracy if we are to stop our descent into authoritarianism. One of the most hopeful developments is that Maine has become the first state to pass ranked-choice voting, which also won in Benton County, Oregon. Greens also worked hard to pass statewide statewide initiatives calling for a constitutional amendment to abolish corporate constitutional rights and the concept that money equals speech in Washington and California. We must build coalitions for democracy for democracy reforms, including the replacement of the Electoral College with a national popular vote, ending corporate constitutional rights, public education financing, and free public airtime for candidates to counter the corporate media's failure to inform the public. The Green Party also continued its long record of electing grassroots candidates to local office, with Greens winning 10 elections in California, 5 in Michigan, and 3 in Minnesota. I congratulate all our local candidates and volunteers. You are the heart and soul of our party. It's clearer than ever that America desperately needs a principled alternative to the predatory political establishment. I hope you will continue as an invaluable member of our team, working with myself, Ajamu, and all of our campaign as we continue the work of building a party for people, planet, and peace over profit. We must work as if our lives depend on it. Because they do. This campaign is not ending. To start with, we will be supporting actions against the Trans-Pacific Partnership, as part of a series of protests in Washington, D.C. from November 12 to 17. We will be building Occupy inauguration protests in January. Throughout the coming year, we will be organizing campaign schools and trainings for new candidates. We will also be organizing campaigns to enact ranked choice voting in the presidential race and for a People's Presidential Debate Commission to replace the repressive bipartisan commission on presidential debates for the election starting in 2020. So stay tuned. Take care of yourselves and your loved ones. Don't mourn 
organize and keep fighting for the greater good. Together, we will create an America and a world that works for all of us. The power to create that world is not just in our hopes. It's not just in our dreams. It's in our hands. And from fairvote.org. And this is a press release from Fair Vote from Portland, Maine. On November 8, Maine voters passed question five and became the first state in the nation to adopt ranked choice voting for state and federal elections. The Yes on 5 campaign was led by the Committee for Ranked Choice Voting, a grassroots Maine-based organization founded by former independent state Senator Dick Woodbury of Yarmouth and led by Kyle Bailey of Gorham. Quote, Passage of Question 5 is a historic victory for the people of Maine, said campaign chair Dick Woodbury. Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Greens, and Libertarians across Maine understand that the system is broken and they have taken an important step to help fix it. Maine people have exercised their rights to change the way we elect our leaders, said campaign manager Kyle Bailey. Question 5 levels the playing field for candidates with the best ideas and gives more choice and more voice to voters, so you never have to vote for the lesser of two evils. Question 5 was endorsed by over 500 civic, business, labor, and faith leaders and organizations and newspapers across Maine. The campaign was supported by a politically diverse campaign committee and county co-chairs. The nonpartisan League of Women Voters of Maine endorsed ranked choice voting in 2011 and convened a working group that drafted the law on which the initiative was based. Maine has not elected a governor to a first term with majority support since 1966, said Jill Ward, president of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Ranked choice voting restores majority rule and puts more power in the hands of voters. Fair Vote, a national organization that advocates for ranked choice voting and other proven solutions to give more voice to voters, supported a project in Maine to educate, educate voters about this reform. Quote, the adoption of ranked choice voting in Maine marks a dramatic step forward for American democracy, said Fair Vote Executive Director Rob Ritchie. Maine's groundbreaking victory promises to inspire other states to embrace this better system. So in case you've never heard of ranked choice voting before, I'll give a quick overview. And if you really want to understand it, you won't get that from me. You'll have to look this one up online and read more about it. But essentially with ranked choice voting, you don't just go in and choose the single candidate that you want. You go in when you vote and you rank the choices on the ballot. So if there's five candidates on the ballot, you say, this is my first vote, and this is my second vote, third, fourth, and fifth, if in fact you wish to vote for all five. And what happens if no candidate gets a majority, gets better than 50% of the votes in the race, then whoever got the least, the lowest number of votes, they're taken out of the equation 
And the second choice that was selected for that candidate becomes or, or gains their gains their vote. So if uh, Tom had the fewest votes and you voted for Tom as number one and you voted for Jill as number two, then your vote would go to Jill. And that keeps going until a candidate reaches 50% of the votes. So if in the second round, when you distribute that, sing, that, that first or last lowest voters uh, or lowest candidates' votes to the other candidates, if then one of those other candidates reaches 50%, then, then it's done. That's the person who was elected. If not, then it goes, to the, it goes for another round, and the next lowest candidate is dropped and their votes are reassigned to the remaining candidates in the race. So eventually someone ends up with 50% of the votes unless by some miraculous coincidence with all the redistribution, there ends up being a tie, which is extremely unlikely. So if you want to know more about ranked choice voting, which I think is a much better way to vote you can uh, look for that online, ranked choice voting, and find out more about it. Maine being the first state to pass ranked choice voting for all state and national offices. And there are a number of cities out there that have instituted ranked choice voting in the past. So that wraps up the stories from this episode of Bernie 2016. And that brings me to the future of this podcast. And I will be winding down Bernie 2016 as the uh, 2016 election is behind us and the year 2016 starts to come to a close. So this isn't the last episode There'll be a couple more episodes of Bernie 2016. But as Jill said, as Bernie said, as I think we all know and believe and understand, you know, an election is not the end. An election is a beginning. And whether you win or whether you lose, you move forward. And... The candidates are moving forward. The issues are not going away. So I will move forward. But it won't be with Bernie 2016. And I was kicking it around for a while to say, how how do I move this forward? What is the next step? Where do I take this? Where do I where do I go from here as a as a media outlet, as someone who reaches out to you and provides you some stories you may have not seen or heard before. And a couple days ago, it, it clicked, and I realized where what the next step is for Bernie 2016. And when it clicked, it was really obvious to me. Obviously, with Donald Trump in the White House... I think the future of our country, at least for now, is Bernie 2020. 
So this podcast, after a couple more episodes of Bernie 2016, will transition and will become Bernie 2020. And I have no idea, outside of the fact that Bernie has said that he wouldn't certainly wouldn't rule out running in 2020. He's also said four years is a very long way away from now, and it doesn't make very much sense to focus on that when there's so much other important stuff to focus on. So whether Bernie runs in 2020 or not isn't really the point of Bernie 2020. The point is the ideas. The point is the platform. The point is moving us forward in a progressive direction that improves the lives of all Americans. And so that's what the focus of Bernie 2020 will be about. I I don't know, like I said, if Bernie will run in 2020. I don't know if if so that I will support Bernie in 2020. I may get more involved with the Greens. Regardless, I will support the ideas that Bernie raised in his campaign. I've supported those ideas for a long time, but I will be more active than I have in the past in supporting those ideas. And in the next couple episodes, I will talk a little bit more as I start to pull my thoughts to, and together and my direction on transitioning this podcast into its next, its next step. And thank you all for listening. Thank you all for participating and uh, being out there, taking action, doing the things we need to do to make a better country and a better world. And as we close today, I'll play you a song from a new album. There's a brand new album out. It's called Monster Protest Jams Volume 1. And uh, Jill Sobule was the one that pulled all this together. Got a whole lot of artists to contribute tracks. There's some fantastic songs on there. The Coup has a song on there. Billy Bragg. A huge list of very good uh, progressive and political musical artists on there. And another one of my favorite singers out there is Dan Byrne. And he recently recorded a song called Trump. And based on his song, there's a lot that we have to uh, not look forward to in a Trump presidency. But if things work out the way that Dan sings it, we at least can look forward to month 21. I know that's a long way off. But uh, I'm definitely looking forward to month 21 of the Trump presidency based on the song Trump by Dan Byrne. Thanks for listening. In the second month of Trump, end of February, we stepped on Mexico's neck, said we'll wreck your economy. 
you will pay for our wall or we'll lay you low and we were at war with Mexico in the fourth month of Trump he said Trudeau you punk we'll build a wall between us and you and you'll pay for it too they said we're not coming in but Trump he gave a shout said this one's to keep us from getting out on the fifth month of Trump he made a deal with Japan sold them a nuclear bomb then made a deal with South Korea sold them a nuclear bomb then made a deal with North Korea sold them a nuclear bomb it's really really terrific stakes in the seventh month of Trump he sent the Muslims out threw them over the walls the Canadian and Mexican walls said now that Muhammad Ali's gone I can't think of another Muslim I don't know him we don't need him get out in the eighth month of Trump Yosemite became a golf course Grand Canyon a spa resort we had a national private police force sold Alaska back to Putin and then Putin Trump got drunk, got strippers, and made some really, really terrifically bad deals. In the tenth month of Trump, we carpet bombed Cameroon. It was meant to be Iran. Apologize, we don't apologize. In the fifteenth month of Trump, we blew up the moon. Frankly, the moon deserved to be roughed up a little. If any country has a problem with that, they can expect similar treatment. In the 19th month of Trump, he made a deal with China to build them a new wall. Not a great wall, a really terrific wall. In the 20th month of Trump, he fracked all of Montana. Came out in Australia, said to be honest, it's time for Australia to move to the northern hemisphere. And you know who's gonna pay for it? China and Mexico. In the 21st month of Trump, he left the planet in a fireball caused by tremendous flooding from a really, really terrific tsunami triggered by great, great earthquakes on account of global warming. A very, very bad, really completely fabricated hoax. And all he left behind were some Art of the Deal book seats signed and an empty golden chair and a very high stack of orange hair. And we swept the floors and washed the sheets, cleaned dishes, mowed the lawn. The stuff you do when your drunken uncle's finally gone. And we got back to our world. Our lives and jobs and children get along with our neighbors, compassion breathing, growing. And you know how good you feel when you finally take that dump. That's 
how it was after those 21 months of Trump.